0: This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you with support from AWS Educate. AWS Educate provides students and educators with free resources to accelerate cloud related learning to enhance tech career readiness. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge. The Hit Podcast Serial started about four years ago, and it sparked a wave of interest in listening to and making podcasts. Among the many folks inspired to jump into the podcasting world were two digital learning leaders at the University of Central Florida. Except, of course, their podcast focuses on online learning and not true crime. It's called the Teaching Online Podcast, or Topcast. And co-host Thomas Kavanaugh says he's driven by his quest to figure out one of the grand challenges of higher ed, how to use tech to lower costs of instruction while at the same time raising quality. Not everyone thinks that's possible, of course. And even Kavanaugh, who is the vice provost for digital learning at the University of Central Florida, admits that edtech can spark plenty of new ethical challenges along the way. Each month, he and his co-host, Kelvin Thompson, who is the executive director of the Center for Distributed Learning at UCF, give their analysis of trends in online learning over a cup of fancy coffee. And these days, their fans send them the beans to fuel their show. I connected with Kavanaugh recently, online, of course, to talk about what he's learned from all those podcast chats and about how his side gig as a detective novelist shapes his work in campus innovation. Here are highlights from that conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's nice to be here. So um yeah, I, I you've been at this a while. How long have you you two been doing the podcast?
1: I guess we're um we're about to like lap into our fourth year. So I think we've about almost completed three years of it, which is pretty amazing. Yeah.
0: yeah, you are you are sort of uh yeah, old school. That was kind of before before serial. You can almost date the podcast history <laughs> to pre-serial and after serial. So it was
1: actually, it was right around that time. Cause oh. right during the popularity of serial, we were talking about it um, and, and thinking that, um, you know, maybe, you know, we should try something. Cause we actually had uh, started looking for something ourselves in just separately, like that we were interested in having to do with, uh, with higher ed and, and digital learning and, and couldn't find anything. And it was sort of serial that got at least me sort of into listening to a lot more podcasts. And um we said, well, since we can't find something, maybe, maybe that's a message. We should try something.
0: <laughs> and I guess what was your um, – you said you were looking for something. So what, what, did you, what would you say kind of the, the mission is uh, of, of, of the podcast? Or what, are your, what were you sort of trying to, to, to help people with?
1: Well, I mean, really the, the format is uh, uh, just a, a couple of colleagues sitting around talking about the stuff that we do, which is online learning and uh, over a cup of coffee, which has become a kind of a recurring meme. You hear yeah. the burbling. Yeah, the pouring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every that's episode,
0: right. you pour the coffee for the microphone.
1: That's right. And it, and it needs to somehow be thematically tied to what we're talking about, even if that's a, a tenuous connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the idea is that uh, if, if you are in this space you could put on your headphones and uh, grab a cup of coffee and, and sit down for 25 minutes or so and uh, kind of be part of a conversation with some colleagues, even if we're not in the same room, talking about things that we're all hopefully, you know, facing. And occasionally we do bring in interviews. Um, we try to do an interview maybe every other month or so. Um, we will sometimes like bank them at a conference and then kind of spread them throughout the year as uh, as, we, as we plan future episodes. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the whole idea is to just kind of talk about things that are either in the news or that we think are are relevant, um, to the work that we do.
0: Now, the most recent episode was about learning analytics, which is, it's really an interesting topic. I think these days, um, it, it, it does seem like one where there is a lot of, I, you know, kind of, I, I hear a lot of hope and buzz around that, especially because, you know, it, it strikes me that, um, there, there's, I wonder actually what you think of this too, is, it strikes me as one of the exa- an example of a technology intervention in higher ed right now that it doesn't first talk about a tool right i mean it, you know there was the kind of lms is a is a toolkit right it's like a swiss army knife for for teaching but this learning analytics it feels like the conversation around it is far more focused on outcomes for students or sort of what it can at least that's the way it's kind of presented i don't know if it, it always it, you know maybe delivers but but the idea of, of like how do you help move the needle by having data, better data and, and, and analyzing what's happening with students? Um, do you see that as a, as a broader trend as well in some tools these days compared to in the past?
1: Well, I do, and I think as the tools improve, um, they will become you know more ubiquitous and and more you know effective. Um, but I am sort of all in on analytics as a concept. I'm not sure if we've quite realized the vision yet, but let's leverage technology to, to help, right? You know, I think that there are things that technology can do that, that humans can't. And That was kind of the way in on that, that episode that you referenced. Um, we could probably do multiple episodes on learning analytics. Maybe there's probably a whole podcast about it out there somewhere. Um, but our way in was to kind of talk about the, the human side of it. So analytics as an adjunct to the, to the human connection that um, is sort of necessary when you're actually talking to students about their performance or their risk level or what they're predicted to do, whether or not they'll be retained in a major or at the university or succeed in a course. And those are really delicate conversations that probably should not be you know, kind of wholesale um, you know, hand it over to technology, but technology can play a part in it and can provide information to the humans who are having those conversations. And that—that that was mostly what we talked about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really am interested in your view on that because I was surprised. I mean, it seems like with learning analytics, it absolutely is an example of you know, kind of the it, the AI, right? This the 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 robot um, assistant idea, and yet you're talking about enhancing human conversations. How does that
1: yeah well, I guess it depends on the on the use case that you're talking about, so I mean, for example, if you look at um at the the Jill Watson experiment that was at Georgia Tech where it was the the virtual uh, teaching assistant and the students in the class didn't know that they were talking to a bot um, there is actually i think not a bad application of of kind of you know outsourcing if you will a, a kind of a traditional human function to a to a robot um because uh, the service that provided was, was worthwhile and helpful and it, and it did no harm. Um, but if you're talking to a student, um, hey, Jeff, it looks like you're, you're not going to be that aerospace engineer that you think you are because of your performance in these classes, I don't think that's something we want to outsource to a bot. I think that's something that a human being needs to have a conversation with you about. But the human being would be informed by the data from some of these you know, big data systems or AI or analytics.
0: Now we've had a couple people on the podcast that talked about the 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 sort of how treacherous some of these analytics can be, right? And um, I totally, you know, I, I understand your um, your perspective. It sounds maybe even similar, but the, some of the warnings around analytics <clears throat> are that they can essentially be profiling, or I mean, analytic algorithms are always built by people, and they're built often with assumptions um, baked in. And so, what do? You, how do you? Um, what advice do you have, or how do you think through that if you're thinking about it in your own context of of how to avoid some of the pitfalls of of getting algorithms into the classroom?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, I, and I'm not sure as a as an industry we we've completely you know gotten our arms around it yet. But um, I would say maybe a place to start is to you know don't prejudge any student um, and judge them on their actual behavior. We recently did some analysis. We hope to publish this soon. Um, I funded <laughs> out of my department uh, a faculty member who's a you know a, kind of a world-class data scientist in our data mining program here at, at UCF, and um, he spent uh, half a year just analyzing um, both um, some of our SIS data and our LMS data. And um, really, what he came back with, I, I will not do it justice to his research, but in a real summary form. Um, Incoming GPA on day one of the class, uh, whether that's coming from high school or a transfer institution or GPA here at our institution, um, is really the only thing that predicted um, kind of success without any other data. It had nothing to do with like race, ethnicity, age, gender, were immaterial it was really just gpa which was interesting um so he he claims an 85 percent accuracy of his prediction model before students done even one thing in the course now we need to validate that but then once you start layering in lms data his his predictive model uh goes up to a 90 percent accuracy just based on students actual performance in the course and we looked at all kinds of things and again none of those demographic data made a difference Um, the uh, number of logins didn't make a difference really what mattered are things that were graded like uh, quizzes and tests and assignments and how the students actually performed on those things that were graded so if you look at the those two data points gpa and actual performance in the course um, i think that if you build your at least what we're having conversations about here is if we can kind of build our predictive models potentially around those. You can avoid the the bias of prejudging a student based on any other kinds of factors other than how are you doing? Uh, are you performing? And if you're not, then maybe they need some extra help or have a conversation with them.
0: I sometimes wonder, at, you know, in my, my role is just a reporter watching this space. I don't have a dog in this fight, which I feel like one of the things that to me is always interesting is like how, What is is it possible that we're over hopeful about what these data can tell us in a way? Like in some ways, teachers for years have have been using their instincts and and know these grades already, right? I mean they're already grading their students and watching how well they're doing, one would hope. And so I, I wonder sometimes just because you have all this click data and the ability to kind of read over their shoulders, so to speak, or you know, see what they're looking at on their how much of the videos they're watching, how much of the the, the book they're reading. Um, is that really going to give us any insight over or is it, is it give you enough insight to make it all worth it to set up this huge infrastructure?
1: I think it's a question of scale. If, if you're teaching 12 students, then you kind of don't need the big data, right? Cause you can have those kinds of deep interactions with your students and know what they're doing, but you know, we've got 68,000 students here and um, it, it's hard <laughs> to 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 treat each one of them individually to that level um you know it, that would be our goal um and i think technology can help us with that if um if we can leverage the uh, the kind of ai or or uh, bots or data analysis to you know raise to the surface those students who are maybe struggling and and we could intervene intervene quickly um i think technology can do that in a way that humans can't at the scale that we're talking about, and then even just beyond our institution, I think across the the country, um, it, if you, to combining some of these data sets, learning about what's effective, uh, I think that um, that that's the promise. It's a it's a promise of scale. If if you were if you and I were the only two people in the course, it would be easy.
0: When we get back from the break, a roller coaster chase scene. Well, we'll mention one as we shift to talking about Kavanaugh's other gig as an award winning novelist. Of course, I had to ask how that shapes his education work. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. From the AWS Educate Starter account and the AWS Educate Job Board to a cloud associate's degree and virtual classroom environment, AWS Educate has been delivering new initiatives to bring cloud learning and jobs to students since 2015. With a mission to provide students and educators with the resources needed to accelerate cloud-related learning, AWS Educate is getting ready to announce its newest offering for educators. Since launch, over 2,400 member institutions, 10,000 educators, and hundreds of thousands of students use AWS Educate to learn about cloud technology. Learn more at bit.ly awseducateevolution and sign up to hear about what's next. That's bit.ly slash awseducateevolution. I, I can't help but ask because you're probably one of the only people I've talked to on the podcast who also writes murder mysteries.
1: <laughs> okay. And it's been now, a while since i published one, but yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw that on your website, though, um, that you had um, a, a couple novels, right? Head Games, Murderland, the, and um, it's, it's about – a couple of them at least follow a private investigator um, – and, and sidekick. So is there anything that um, that your kind of work in that sp- space has has taught you or, or made you think differently about your work in digital learning? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that's a good question, Jeff. Um, I don't know. Uh, murder mysteries and online learning. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I probably should firewall those if I haven't already. Um, no, no, I haven't really. Uh, it, like I said, it's, it's been a couple of years since I've published a novel, uh, and so I need to kind of finish the one I'm working on. Um, so I've been devoting most of my time to to, to the day job. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, um, but you know, uh, I love doing both. I think, um, honestly, the the creative outlet of, of fiction writing um, makes me kind of better at work. Uh, I think it exercises certain kinds of critical thinking muscles, and uh, you know that. That can be applied to uh, to just everyday work. Um, even if it's looking at a spreadsheet, uh, it probably doesn't hurt to uh, to be thinking in different ways, solving problems,
0: solving problems and solving crimes. And yeah. you're, right. yeah. I saw on Goodreads somebody said they love the the chase scene, the uh, roller coaster chase scene in one of your books. So yeah, it made yeah. me curious so- to read that now going I'm going to do a shameless
1: out. plug yeah you've, you've mentioned them uh so yeah i do have a website it's thomasbcavenagh.com there's no no you in cavanaugh uh, <laughs> they're all available digitally and um yeah the first one uh is is called M- murderland uh that was published kind of through a small press uh, but the other two were uh, were through saint martin's and were kind of a two-part series uh with the same with the same central character head games is, is maybe the one that was most well known for me i um, it won the Florida Book Award. I was nominated for a Seamus Best Novel for Private Eye Writing, so that was kind of cool.
0: Yeah, congrats.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: Yeah, it's not like you're gonna literally make a Choose Your Own Adventure um, online course, but but it it does strike me as something that is a, is a pretty interesting kind of parallel life you're leading there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and honestly, I think if you get in the habit of writing, um, it also helps you with the scholarly writing that I occasionally do. You just you sit down and write, you know, it's not intimidating. I know that blank page can be intimidating, but if you just sort of get in the habit of writing all the time, whether it's fiction or whatever, um, okay, I'm just going to write this thing now today instead of that thing.
0: I'm sure the coffee that your podcast listeners give you is uh, also helpful. in both.
1: <laughs> yeah. It doesn't hurt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. Well, is there anything else that, that I haven't asked you um, or that, that you wanted to talk about, about uh, the podcast or what you've learned or, or anything going on at UCF?
1: Well, there is a recurring theme that we keep coming back to in the podcast that I don't think is going away anytime soon. So maybe I'll just mention that. Um, and the idea is of the of the Iron Triangle and how online and digital learning is a potential disruptor for breaking the Iron Triangle. And Remind absolutely- us what the Iron Triangle is. So the Iron Triangle is um, is uh, uh, access, cost, and quality. Uh, each of them is a kind of a bar on the on the triangle and the, the thinking is that you you can't positively impact all three at the same time so if you want to increase quality you're going to you know negatively increase cost for example or, or you're going to reduce access um, and the the notion of disrupting that through online learning is that you can positively impact all of them by using different models and, and new ways of doing things and and it's kind of been at least our premise here that that that's true, um, at least in some ways, and uh, and we're doing everything we can to try to positively impact cost, access, um, and quality uh, through through digital technologies.
0: So you believe? I guess your your theme is that it can be done, and it is happening, starting to happen.
1: Yeah, uh, I I do uh, I do think that. Um, and um, you know, it's it's a constant. <laughs> it's why I come to work every day because it's a it's a constant effort to kind of stay on top of that um because each one of those is there there are pressures behind it and sometimes they're external pressures whether they be policy pressures or other kinds of things funding resources Um, but there was a really nice case study that Ithaca SNR did of us that was really just kind of about that a couple of years ago uh, focusing on both digital learning and our transfer program uh, at the institution as strategies that can potentially break the iron triangle and and we're not letting that go and I honestly think that that's something that um, that we'll probably see more of uh, as time goes on across across higher ed.
0: Can you give me a, a super short version of what that looks like in practice? I think I understand you, but a student in that effort that Ithaca Sr. SR wrote about is, is what? How does that play out?
1: Uh, so for example, uh, you can increase access and reduce cost through the, the transfer program, for example. So we're the largest transfer receiving institution in the country, um, mostly through our Direct Connect to UCF program. This is kind of separate from online learning. Through and, like
0: from transferring from community colleges or from other right. two years. I mean, other yeah. four years,
1: pardon me. No, mostly community colleges. Here in Florida, they're now mostly called state colleges. And, and we've got a consortial agreement with six of them in our region where a student can declare their intent to come to UCF. Um, when they graduate with their aa, and and if they're part of this consortium, they're guaranteed admission to UCF. So the first two years are completed at a much lower cost, and we're able to open access for those students uh, on a guaranteed basis. you know that they've proven they can do it by by achieving the AA. Um, so it it positively increases um, access, reduces cost. And then I would say our our quality um, is, um, is at least as good, um, or at least not compromised by by doing that. And then we do similar things online by um, by you know using um, adaptive learning, for example, to kind of personalize the experience for students um, at, at scale. Hmm.
0: hmm. Um, and so that transfer, that helping that through online learning is is the is the really the the example you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's all kind of of a piece, right? Um, but yeah, online learning um, allows you to, to reduce costs. I think if you're doing it uh, through, especially through some economies, economies of scale, um, I argue that you can increase quality uh, if you do it well, um, and that requires effort and investment. Um, and um, so I said cost, quality, and access, um, because you, you're opening it up to people who previously could not come. You know, I use the example of like like my mom, who was a nurse. if she had wanted to go back to school, she worked the overnight shift in the i c u at a hospital mm-hmm. as I was growing up, mm-hmm. and um she couldn't go to class Monday, Wednesday, Friday at ten o'clock in the morning, but if she had wanted to go back and get her um, you know the next level of her education, um, online would have been a solution for her. And we have an awful lot of students like that here, so definitely access so I mean just speaking in sort of broad strokes, you can kind of see, I think, how online learning is a lever to try to uh, upend the, the Iron Triangle.
0: Your mom should totally listen to your podcast. <laughs> I'll
1: tell her. Jeff <laughs> says,
0: yeah. Tell her. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, your views with our listeners. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Surge on your podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to leave a rating or review. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.